welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay, and I'm happy to welcome to the show Bob Godoskis. Bob, welcome to Filmstrip. Please tell folks a little bit about yourself. Hi there. Yeah, I'm Bob Godowskis. I'm a local theater actor in the uh, in the D.C. area. Uh, I'm kind of a self-proclaimed Gilbert and Sullivan nerd, but uh, not too far down the rabbit hole. Uh, and uh, I, I do some audio conferencing, web conferencing work uh, for my day job. Very cool. Bob and I are part of a Facebook group that does theater readings together. And that's like right. That's something we've kind of done to keep ourselves occupied during COVID. And we got to talking one day and decided, yeah, we need to, we need to do a podcast. And so today we are reviewing Topsy Turvy, starring Jib Broadbent, Alan Cordiner, Timothy Spile, Timothy Spale, Leslie Manville, Ron Cook, and Eleanor David. Directed by Mike Lee, released in 1999 on a $20 million budget, grossed $6.2 million at the box office, won two Academy Awards, and loads of critical acclaim. So, uh, Bob, you described yourself as a bit of a Gilbert and Sullivan nerd. This is a story about Gilbert and Sullivan at a pivotal point in their career, but why did you pick this movie? I should say I'm an aspiring Gilbert and Sullivan nerd. Uh, but, yeah, I, I picked this because, uh, well, it really all started a, a really just a few years ago, I think three, four years ago. Um, I knew very little about Gilbert and Sullivan back then. It was really just that name that everybody knows, right? They know Gilbert and Sullivan. What do they do? Well, I think they're theater related, right? Maybe they did Pirates of Penzance or something. Um, yeah, that, I had the same basis of knowledge. And one day I got an email from somebody who I'd done a show with prior um, saying, hey, you should really try out for the Mikado, which is coming out. Uh, and it's local to you. And I said, well, that sounds interesting, except for one thing, I'm not an opera singer. Um, I've always found myself as more of a musical theater kind of person. And she goes, oh, no, it's operetta. It's not opera. This is it's really is the uh, musical theater of its time. So I said, all right, you know what? I'll give it a shot. I uh, watched a couple of videos on it. I was intrigued. I thought the music was brilliant, but uh, I really didn't know much about it and Eventually, I ended up getting cast in the Mikado as Poobah, which is a fantastic role. Uh, really, really loved it. Um, but part of my doing research into the role was was me coming across this film, Topsy Turvy, which really is, and, and I know you'll get into it, the, the summary of it, but it really is the how the Mikado came to be and goes through the whole process of creating an operetta. And I was just really, really enthralled by it uh, from the get-go. And it, I think if I didn't have the background that I had uh, of getting into theater and all that, I wouldn't be as, as floored by this as normal. But, um, but the movie really spoke to me in a way that now it's become one of my favorite films of all time. That is awesome. And I have to ask just for point of reference, because my knowledge is you have theater plays and you have musical theater. Right. Operetta. I, I know what opera is, I think. But what is an operetta? Operetta is more it's light opera. It's more comic opera. Uh, it's something that's made to be easier digestible. Um, usually when you have think about an opera you think about things like the magic flute or whatever or you have things that will span from three acts all the way up to five or six acts i mean it gets crazy these 
big, long productions where you can sit for, you know, it's like a Shakespeare play, right? You sit there for hours and hours and hours just really appreciating the music and maybe not even really fully understanding it. Whereas with an operetta, it's made to be more digestible, a little bit more relatable, um, funny. And uh, when it was popular in its heyday with Gilbert and Sullivan, it really, they didn't really rely on opera singers so much, but more the musical theater style singing that you see today. That's very cool. I think the other thing that I, that I've picked up on through the years is that operas in particular, all of it is done through the song and the music, whereas musical theater will have breaks of dialogue and things like that. Right, exactly. In an operetta, it's the same thing. You have, uh, you, you have bits of dialogue thrown in there. It's a, um, I mean, Gilbert would, uh, disagree with me here, but it's secondary to the music, uh, but still there. Yeah. Right, right. Well, yeah, and he was the writer, so that is fair. fair that <laughs> right, he would say something like that. And as a writer, I can understand uh, you would you would say that kind of stuff. I do think it's neat to watch films that are period pieces that are also about famous works and how they come together. And you know this, having been in a number of productions, I know this, having worked on behind the scenes of a lot of stuff. That could be a very laborious and boring thing to do when you're trying to put together sure. something, but watching a movie where they're going to try to make that a narrative and tell a story as part of it was an interesting challenge. Cause when I read the basic summary of it before I watched this, I thought, okay, I'm curious to watch how this comes together. Cause there's been a lot of movies about this. Some of them were some of them better than others. And yeah. I was curious to see how they were going to be able to do this and knowing that the length of this, I mean, it's over two and a half hours long. I felt like I was going to get a big chunk of the story at once. Yeah. And, and I guess I, I also kind of equate it to like the, uh, you know, the, the artist movies, you know, you have uh, the movie like walk the line and, and movies like that, but you know, there's a bunch of them out there where it follows the artists and, and the bands and it tells their story and they always seem to sensationalize certain things. There's, and the, or they really take certain liberties. Whereas with this film, I, I, based off of my, research and what the general consensus is is that they really did a fantastic job with keeping it true to the history yeah i think not only that but true to the time period it was made in the victorian era and what the sensibilities yeah. were then and just how out there this idea was for these gentlemen and their producer and everyone involved and i We'll talk about it when we get there. There's a great moment where the cast essentially revolts because, yeah. no, you're not cutting that. And so I, we'll talk. Which about is a totally we... true story, by the way. Yeah. 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 It's, I, I found that out. I watched a documentary after watching this movie and they, they mentioned that specifically. And I thought I had thought at first I was like, oh, they threw that in to kind of give those people something to do because it's a cast yeah. of like 80 people. But right. I, then to find out it's real, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is uh, pretty incredible. Uh, and to think, you know, it, it may not have happened exactly the same way, you know, maybe not in the stairwell uh, you know, as it was portrayed in the film. Uh, but the fact that the entire chorus was there on opening night trying to persuade the, the hard to break nut that Gilbert was <laughs> into changing his mind really was uh, something to behold. It was fantastic. Yeah, I, I kind of decided in my head, I was like, this is a guy who clearly has the vision and he is not going to let anybody else mess with it because he may yeah. be the writer, but he is also the producer. He's the, he's doing direct. He's doing all of it. He's definitely involved in the production. What actor, let alone chorus member, would be would have the guts to go to the writer and be like, no, we think you're wrong on this. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, let's do a quick plot summary and then we can get into yeah. topsy turvy here. 
So after their production, Princess Ida is criticized for being a bit routine. The partnership of lyricist William Gilbert and composer Arthur Sullivan hits the skids. Uh, we get a glimpse into their creative process, their differences, the nightmares behind the scenes of producing a large-scale operetta, all the while enjoying some delicious production and costume design of the Victorian era. We see Sullivan overcome his failing health while Gilbert finds new inspiration for storytelling devices in the form of an exhibition on Japanese culture that his wife takes him to. Finally, putting aside their differences, Gilbert and Sullivan complete the Mikado along with their partners and the cast deliver what becomes one of their biggest works. And that's kind of the simplest way I can describe this. We really just sure. have to get into the movie and talk about what's going on with them. And what I, what I really enjoy about this and what I, I tend to enjoy about period pieces that center around a, a specific time frame is they don't bother to try to catch us up on everything that's happened before. And they won't really give us much on the back end either of what happens. We get like one title card at the end, but it's right. they throw us right into these guys who are already successful. They're already famous. I mean, this is past print pirates of Benzance and HMS Pinafore and all those things. And now they have kind of hit the, the album. Nobody likes if this was a band, you know, and they don't know what to do. <laughs> And well, and to be fair, uh, a large part of that, it's argued, is because of that summer heat that they experience uh, in, that's actually shown in the movie. Um, they, you know, part of it is, you know, is it as good as some of their works? Maybe not. But also that that huge heat wave that hit London at the time was just, uh, you know, air conditioners in theaters were not a thing, even though it was like the most high tech theater in the world at the time it was like i think it was the very first theater that ever had full electric lights um so yeah it's just really astonishing you see everybody fanning themselves and they really did it justice with with pointing that out in this film and, and in particular that's the kind of thing that generally makes period pieces work is when you can right. show us things about everyday life you don't over paint all the costuming and the way people talk and things you make it seem very natural and normal and the fact that you've got a natural phenomenon like a heat wave going on that's driving everybody a little batty makes it perfect and it also gives you an appreciation for imagine wearing that in that kind of heat right it makes it more human it makes you connect with the actors a little bit more and just oh my gosh how could they have dealt with that at that time yeah yeah exactly yeah, we got it. We got to talk about Jim Broadbent and Alan Cordner here, of our course. two leads. I mean, unbelievable performances. You've seen them in a hundred other things. You just don't know their names, folks. And that's the the arc of good character actors is right. they always disappear in their roles. And what's amazing is how much they look like Gilbert and Sullivan. It, it really is uncanny. It, I mean, getting the facial hair is one thing, but even uh, you know the facial structure, the mannerisms, just the way that they're cadence—it's all like very, very true to form. And Jim Broadbent, I mean, I, I have to say, I think he really nailed it. He really knocked it out of the park with his performance because um, it's it's difficult to play that kind of a, a role where you're um, so stodgy i guess is the best word to put it but yet have a sensitive side to him and you can you, you want to root for him even though he's the quote-unquote villain of the show not really the villain but you know what i mean like he's 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 the tough one yeah i think that's neat that you you describe that too because i was thinking to myself i'm like who's the antagonist in this and i decided the antagonist is ego and time like yeah, that's that's really right. what these guys are it really for. is yeah, for sure. E ego, especially. I mean, when you're looking at um, at Sullivan, 
Uh, what he's trying to do is, I mean, ever since he was 16 years old, he was raised to be England's best composer. I mean, he was knighted at an early age. I, I mean, he, I mean, Gilbert wasn't knighted until after their association, whereas Sullivan the whole time working with him was like, oh, I got this on you. Um, but all he wanted to do was make a grand opera. Uh, and he thought he was above and beyond all this uh, topsy-turvydom that Gilbert proclaimed was uh, was so fundamental to their association. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I was trying to think of modern analogs to these two. And mm. you're going to kill me for this, maybe, but I was thinking Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Because if you don't know much about their their collaboration, like most of their songs were written over fax machines mm. <laughs> in different places. But Elton will will tell you to this day, Bernie can play twice as good as I can. He just doesn't want to. But he's he is absolutely <laughs> will hammer me on. No, you have to phrase it like this. And they would go back and forth on the telephone for hours about it. And I was watching these performances. And again, not being you know, having the background with it, I was trying to think of how can I hook into this. And I was like, it reminds me of everything I ever read about those guys and how yeah. they work together. Well, it just totally. Uh, diametrically opposed just like two total opposites that are working together to create this magic that has stood the test of time and continues to stand the test of time uh that conflict is brilliantly um portrayed in in the in the movie and i i just love that yeah and you've got two actors who clearly get it and work well together oh, yeah. and they have the personalities of these two people are so interesting to me, Bob, because Gilbert is very serious. He's very much a career man. He's married. So he's very faithful to his wife, but his focus is on, you know, his writing and his, his, honestly, his legacy. He's, you know, he's already famous and rich. He's worried about what people are going to say when he's dead. Sure. You know, are they going to remember me? Or are they just going to laugh me off as just another you know, thing that I had a one trick and I used it over and over? Whereas Sullivan, like you said, is this serious musician. He's kind of beating himself up. He's got a wife, but he's also got a mistress. And he's just he's got health problems, he's got kidney stones. He's he's well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of correct you real quick there, um, Jay. He he actually wasn't married. He almost got married. Oh, OK. Uh, uh, Sullivan, he he had a uh, he had a fiance. And I guess there was a. Uh, he he wasn't completely loyal to her, so it, I guess he just decided it wasn't for him or, or she did. Uh, it, it wasn't for them. And so he uh, started seeing um, Fanny, uh, and that that became like his whole world. Just he didn't need to be married again. He just needed this one woman in his life, and that was it. Uh, I mean, aside from you know, all the brothels he went to and everything, but the one yeah. serious relationship. Yeah. It's, it's very much, it was kind of like watching some of the old Westerns um, and watching like the, the way Doc Holliday was portrayed and really how he was as a person too. Mm -hmm. His main companion was a roaming prostitute, but he just kind of hung around in the bars and saloons and did whatever, you know, while, while he was gambling and not shooting people, you know, so right. I, I mean, that was, that's kind of how I took him though, as you have the straight laced kind of guy. And then you have the wild card, who's the real creative one, right? Not mm -hmm. that Gilbert's not creative, because writing like that is that takes a lot of. Skills. And I could have another discussion about Tombstone someday, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But 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 old, but old Sullivan. I mean, you, you watch, and what I love is they take time to show us with him playing music in other places and other settings, and you yeah. see just how good he is. And I don't know if Alan Corder could really play the piano or not, but if that's a pantomime job, he did a heck of a job with. Um, I, I think he could play the piano, but I think he was new to conducting. He had to actually go and get special training, um, especially for the Victorian era training, because 
uh, he's what the way he's conducting in the film is not the way that you would normally conduct or are modern conducting um, e- or even for that time. Uh, he really because if you look at the other gentleman and I forget his name at the moment, but the other gentleman who who conducted most of the shows for him in his stead, because, uh, you know, sadly, he was very ill, but also he was busy doing other things. But they had two very different uh conducting styles you know sullivan had the big heavy wand and did more side to side more more um precise movements and and sharp and the others a little bit more flowy a little bit more modern that we see it today right i did notice that that there was a difference and i I thought that was again to illustrate the different disciplines of music that this gentleman came from versus the conductor and and anyone else really in the, in the orchestra there. Uh, I got to say too, though, the, the art direction and the costumes and everything win the awards and get all the notes. The music recreation in this is fabulous. Really is. I it's full of so many amazing musical numbers that, and one of my favorite Gilbert and Sullivan shows is actually a lot of people's not so favorite, including Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, the Grand Duke, the Grand Duke. There's there are so many themes um, in the movie where they will just have it running as a backtrack, uh, just music from other shows, but mostly the Grand Duke. And that was, I think, the last or the second to last uh, operetta that they ever produced together. Um, and it kind of showed Gilbert's weakness, but it showed Sullivan's really soaring talent because it, he was now at another level. He he was really going for that real operatic sound, the the really complicated uh, musical numbers. It, it really is uh, just a treat for the ears. It's one of the neat devices they do to move the plot along. And it's actually something they were doing. Uh, Princess Ida closes and they don't have time to get this new thing together. They're working on it. So Dolly Cart, their producer, and we got to talk about that guy. Oh, yeah. About a powerhouse. Uh, He's, you know, the (laughs) he's the brains behind this thing in a lot of ways. But he he basically does reviews of their old shows. But they use pieces of those reviews to kind of move the plot along, which I thought was smart because it's a way to show you the breadth of the Gilbert and Sullivan catalog without having to tell you the story about all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh, Wendy Nottingham, uh, the actress who played uh, Helen Lenoir. It was, it, it's Doily Cart's assistant. And it was funny that you said uh, under Doily's direction, well, yeah, Doily Cart had a big part to play because he was the man of the theater. She made a lot of decisions and she was really kind of, and, and it was so, I'm so glad they included this in the movie. Uh, she sat down at the uh, negotiating table with Gilbert and Sullivan, and she was really kind of uh, in charge of the whole meeting. And I thought that was a wonderful uh, uh, a tribute to her legacy because she took, she took it after uh, Doily Cart, um, uh, passed away, and I think she kept on going with it. Yeah, everything I read said that she had too, and it was neat to watch that relationship. But if you read anything about Gilbert and Sullivan, you you'll find out about Dolly Clark early on because he's the one that kind of put them together and oh, kept yeah. them going. And oh, it was yeah. really like you know, if you think of like famous producers that kept you know, bands together and and your famous you know filmmakers and producers that worked together for years and things like that. Uh, a lot of times we associate directors and actors that do things together. So Scorsese and DiCaprio have done a lot together. Scorsese's done a lot with De Niro. You know, the, these people that just collaborate mm-hmm. together. The, there's that person that is not maybe the 
the actor or whatever, but he knows talent when he sees it. And he knows also he knows what sells. And that's the thing is he's like, I, you know, this is fine. Princess Ida is fine. It's really hot. People aren't digging it. I need something that sells. We, I need a hit. Right, right. And he he was even willing to go so far as to put up revivals uh, in the meantime while they worked on something else because he needed to make money and he knew those were money makers, even though he wasn't, as he said in the movie, he wasn't in the business of revivals. Um, but yet he, he had to do what he had to do. And, you know, it, it was it was a, a great, you know, opportunity for them to redo The Sorcerer. I mean, it's a shorter show. It's probably a lot easier for them to do unlimited time, um, you know, after closing Ida earlier than expected. Um, but I, I mean, I love the sorcerer as well. Um, it's, but, it's fun. The scene we get to see of it too. And oh yeah. You, we get to watch everybody playing off of each other. And again, it's, it's a way to tell us Gilbert and Sullivan history without having to tell us all of it. They show it to us, you know, and I mean, the rule of movies mm-hmm. is always is show don't tell. Right. And, and the fact that they showed us so many um, theater devices as well, the theater magic behind the scenes during that, uh, you know, the way that they made the teapot spark uh, and uh, using the um, the sheet or whatever to create the thunder effect. Uh, it was just really cool to see all those moments and, and even... Even the, just the realism of it, I, I know this is kind of a departure a little bit, but speaking of the sorcerer, there's one part where you have the women of the chorus backstage mouthing along to the soprano who's singing her lead. And, and I just thought that was so realistic. You know, I, all of us who want to be the roles that are on stage, but we're like cast as chorus or something, we're backstage, we're mouthing it along. We're like, oh, yeah, this what a, what, what a wonderful feeling that would up, be right that's that's yeah. the life of the understudy right so uh, but no I, I love that though too because you know I, I think it's neat to always i'm always been a behind the scenes behind the curtain kind of guy mm-hmm. it's fun to know those things because it just makes the magic more fun on the on the front end and when you look at this period you realize they didn't have sound systems they barely right. had electricity to turn the lights on they were doing all of that with anything they could find those big sheets of tin and all that stuff just to make those natural effects. There's something neat about that. It's like watching movies from the eighties and nineties with practical effects versus today's CGI films. Nothing against the CGI stuff. It looks awesome, but there's nothing like watching the original Terminator and realize that's a puppet on a ride. And the incredible amount of creativity that it takes to do that. And, and so much extra work than CGI does these days. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, like you go, go to Star Wars, right? The original Star Wars, everybody was a puppet, you know, good, good old Jim Henson. Uh, but, uh, now, you know, then everybody kind of started saying, ah, I don't really like all the CGI because it was just not as creative. It didn't feel as real for some reason. And I just really like all those old style, like all the, the old creative ways that they created the special effects. I just love it. Yeah, it's fun. And it, it also is a good way that they frame the conflict between our two leads here is Gilbert is relying on a storytelling device that he's used. He's used again, again, the magical MacGuffin, I would call it. <laughs> the, the lozenge. Yeah. Yes. The magical lozenge is now that, you know, their thing. And they, and I love how Sullivan stands up and says, this is boring. <laughs> it's the this. same thing yeah. yeah we've done this we've done this we've done this and i love gilbert's response to him it sounds to me like a lot of modern hollywood discussions like we've done that before yeah but it's sold 
So we just do it again. Right. I think it was like, oh, it's another magic potion. No, this one's a pill or something like that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there's just a slight twist on it. But I do love that that is the conflict of it. And because of that, Sullivan is out. Like, he's like, no, I don't want to do this. You know, right. and it's not that I don't like you anymore. It's just I don't think we can work on this because at that point, and you, you've hit it, he was trying to create a grand scale music that he just hadn't tapped into yet. And yeah. when they finally get around to the Mikado, what he puts together is unbelievably complicated and you know, Gershwin style. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, he has done uh, a grand opera and he also did a, a great parlor, parlor song called The Lost Chord, which is actually shown in the movie as well when um, uh, when Ms. Reynolds is uh, singing along with him while he's playing. Uh, and that was such a such a great thing to add too, because parlor songs were also a very big thing back in those days. I mean, it was you know, everybody today has an iPod or whatever or, or means of listening to music, Spotify. But in those days, uh, everybody had a piano in their parlor, and ev- and that was the whole thing: is everybody getting together and playing their different parlor songs for each other. And it was just another wonderful way to get us into the period. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that even worked into American culture. You know, I have grown up in the South and things. I knew, you know, men that were my dad's age and stuff, but when they were younger, they played juke joints and they would have hoop mm. nannies and, you know, all these, you know, folk festivals and stuff that still go on today. And it was really just because, well, you got done working in the field for the day and maybe the week and you went and did that all Saturday night before you rolled into church the next morning half drunk, you know, but that was <laughs> what everybody did. And yeah. it's the same here is if you've got a piano and there's somebody famous coming through town that you can get to come and play for you, it is, I mean, you're at the feet of one of the masters and then, you know, they, they get to collaborate there. That's, that's one of the scenes I was talking about. You get to watch him play and create and you realize just how big of a deal this guy was. And again, you know the name Sullivan, but if you really start listening to the music, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is amazing the compositions and the layers that he puts together. And in a I comment, mean, that wasn't easy to do. I, I, I've already talked about the Grand Duke, but I challenge anyone to go pick up a, an audio recording of the Grand Duke. I mean, lyrics aside, you know, not Gilbert's best, but just listen to the music. It's really, really good stuff. And hopefully after hear, hearing this podcast, you'll go and watch Topsy Turvy and you'll be able to hear... Uh, all of those great Grand Duke themes that are played every time when they're at the restaurant or when uh, Gilbert is, you know, nursing his tooth and he doesn't, he's dreading going to the dentist, you know, all those. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Let's talk about that phrase topsy turvy as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've heard that forever, but I didn't know what its origin was. And I was hoping you could shed some light on what that means. Well, sure. I mean, I'll give it my best shot. I, I'm not sure if it was originated by Gilbert and Sullivan, but it's certainly become synonymous with Gilbert, especially. Um, just the flipping everything on its head. Just I get. OK, so here, here's an example of topsy turvydom, right? Um, you've got the uh, the tenor who comes into town, who's dressed like a, uh, you know, a cheap tailor who is the second trombone, but he's really the monarch's son in disguise. Uh, but the person who is with the person that he wants to be with, uh, he was is an ex-convict, but he is now the head of the town, and but he can't kill anybody because he would have to kill himself first, and... 
and he has to find somebody to kill in order to it's just it's so flipped everything is flipped upside down i don't know if i have a better way to describe topsy-durvy than that but it's (laughs) i I think you've nailed it and nowadays i think we would call it the twist the m not shamalaning of the the story you know but 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 every plot device in it is topsy-turvy yes but everything is wrong so you've also described like the plot of aladdin uh, a couple of different times. Mm. Oh, that, well, that's true. Yeah. People pretending to be something that they're not in order to get the attention of people who they think are something else as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's, yeah, but I, I love it. But I love how that, like he's reading that one review and he, he talks and it, he takes it. Gilbert takes that as such a slight, you know, but they keep throwing it at him. Like, but that's what you do, man. Right. Exactly. It's, and <laughs> it's so funny to hear him uh, discussing that review and to hear that he really did hate that review um, because it all sounds like a pretty great review. I mean, they have like, well, you know, maybe it's not as great as some of the others, but it was still a fantastic performance, you know, and and the fact that he's just like, oh, thank you very much. It's like, yeah, it's, it's oh, like geez. if Roger Ebert gave a Scorsese movie three stars instead of five back in the day, Scorsese <laughs> yeah. would have been pissed at him. Speaking of Ebert, he said that this movie was, uh, I think he said this was like one of the best mo- best oh, movies yeah. of the year, for oh, sure. Oh, yeah, he, he, he loved praise it. on it, which I can see why. Again, and, you know, I, mm-hmm. we always put the box office numbers at the front and stuff, and I didn't make a big deal out of it, because this kind of movie is not made to make $20 million back. He probably made it back on home video and through the years. Instead, well, I'm sure he was trying to at least break even. But, yeah, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure they were, <laughs> but but Mike Lee has said, too, he, he got really frustrated in his career because all of his movies kept winding up in art houses. They didn't get wide releases. And they didn't give people time. And this is in the 90s when we were still mm. pretty patient with a movie in a theater. But this is not the, like nowadays, this kind of movie would go straight to Amazon or you know some other streaming service. Yeah. And it would be wildly appreciated the same way it was. But the monetary expectation would be different. So I say you always have to judge those monetary things by looking at the time and place when this was made. In the late 90s, cinema had turned. We were into these auteur, independent filmmakers. Everything was kind of gritty and dark and weird. And we were, we were doing that. That's what was making money. And things like this were making the critical acclaim that they deserve. And that's why it's fun to go back and revisit them. You know, 20 years later, this movie would work today if you put it out now it's fine it looks amazing it's shot on film the coloring is great the sound's amazing there's nothing wrong with it at all and that's that's when you know you've got something that is meant to be appreciated over time just like art is you know you look at it the first time and you go oh that's okay and then you look at it again a few years later and it's like oh that's actually really amazing oh yeah for sure i mean there's just the work that they put into all the costuming and the sets and the finding the right location and and even going so far as getting Victorian era makeup, sending it to a lab and having it recreated so that it's as uh, true to the times as they could make it. It just really speaks volumes to the amount of work and dedication they put into making a movie to stand on the test of time. That's how you win Oscars. You do that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. That, that, that's, how, that's how you get them. And, and they did. Yeah, they did. And well deserved. So I, I do think it's neat. And one thing I always get taken away by in this is the number of people it takes to pull off a production of this magnitude, not only mm-hmm. having the stars, 
but the amount of like detail work that goes into it. And there's that great scene with Gilbert where he's trying to get the, the three singers to shuffle forward in Japanese fashion. And he brings in actual Japanese people who have no idea what he wants them to do (laughs) and what they're supposed to judge. But he is, he is nailing down those people just piece by piece. That's quite possibly one of my favorite uh, scenes in the whole thing, uh, or at least in the top five scenes, uh, top three. Um, I mean, and I don't know if you noticed Andy Sudeikis in there. Um, yes. Good old Gollum. Yes. I mean, he, <laughs> he was really eccentric and uh, just a fantastic choreographer. And and that was also true as well, because he was, um, he was a, a grotesque dancer, is what they called it back in the day, which is like really, um, like, I don't know. You're familiar with Sia, the artist yeah, yeah. Sia, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the, the dance and the birdcage and all that. I mean, that that would be grotesque dancing. I, I would assume. I'm also not a dancer, so you know, correct me if I'm wrong. But um, it it was just really kind of interesting to see him do like the peacock movement across the stage and the really eccentric discussion with him. Uh, um, yeah, I I just love that scene to bits and the and the way that Gilbert interacted with his cast. Oh, they're they're very funny though. The cast is very funny, and then Gilbert says, uh, "No funnier than if they were sat down on pork pies." I just yeah. love that line. <laughs> it's a great line, but that's a cool scene though because it. I think what a lot of people don't have an appreciation for this is something I want to ask you about is what it takes to pull together just the simplest musical number. Mm. It's like the hundreds of movements that all have to be in line together you have to get the lines right you're singing in unison that it's it's hard enough to talk in unison i can imagine singing in unison and and to do it in a way that is not natural to you at all now these people don't they don't know sure. about japanese culture they're just trying to rip it off yeah yeah precisely i mean it, and it they showed it in that scene where they they were doing their own caricatures of what Japanese culture should be and what the dance should be based on what the choreographer told them and what the, the general consensus would be for a British audience. But Gilbert was like, no, I want this to be as authentic as possible. Just walk, walk like these Japanese ladies do. Um, that was that was great. Um, and there's one thing that could be said for Gilbert and Sullivan is that and which is a tribute to Mike Lee as well, is that Gilbert and Sullivan always tried to make things as accurately as possible right down to the dress and the wigs and the not wearing corsets and everything really really true uh to their reference material and mike lee same thing i think he he did extremely well in trying to pay homage to gilbert and sullivan and how they liked everything to be as accurate as possible I mean, it's clear he has a real love for them and for this story. And you can see Mm -hmm. that coming through. That's always fun to watch a filmmaker. You can tell is not just doing something because this is their latest job or whatever. Maybe they wrote it and they've got some connection to it. But there's there's a real care to make sure that they are telling the story in a way that's going to bring light to a new audience that maybe has forgotten them or didn't know them, you know, and has only Mm. heard the names. And now they're going to be he's sort of building history for people and to take that kind of care. And it is always neat to see. And especially when it comes together, well, like passion projects can go really awry. You know, I, I've talked about Scorsese here. I would, you know, go, go watch his remake of Cape fear. That's a interesting movie. It's not exactly what I think he was intending to do, but you know, it's a performance that he gets out of those people, but he had a real love for that Robert Mitchell film and wanted to do that again. And so you see that again, kind of go awry sometimes, but in this case, it, 
totally works. And I think it works in a lot of ways because you've got actors and performers here who are very much at home in the theater. And, you know, I looked at several of them, a lot of them, that is what they did. They were part of musical theater and, mm-hmm. and things. So, I mean, obviously you hire the right people to, to do this stuff. Um, I think it was neat to see Timothy Spale, who a lot of the audience will only know from like his time in like Harry Potter movies, or if you've seen Rockstar <laughs> with Mark Wahlberg. Um, but I think a handful of them were in uh, <laughs> were in Harry Potter, actually. Yeah, right, yeah, right, and every, yeah. yeah, you see a lot of, but to watch him give performances and you watch him strain his voice out and that one mm-hmm. performance and he just, I was like, man, that is so neat to show how how hard this kind of work is. I mean, you say you're not an opera singer, Bob. I've heard you sing and I've seen you do some of these performances where you sing and stuff. That's got to take a toll on you night after night. Oh, for sure. Uh, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> opera singing, I find, is is more smart singing than musical theater. Musical theater, you're putting your all and your emotion into it. Not saying that opera singers don't, please. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know you could growl out uh, a line in musical theater or in operetta whereas uh in in grand opera that's kind of no 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 you're gonna get uh, scorned for doing that sort of thing so it can be a lot harder on the voice to do something like this than opera i would say yeah i mean you're trying to emote so many different things at the same mm-hmm. time and just hit your mark and stay on key and all that stuff it's neat to that we get enough time to see all of these other people who make this happen and what they go through as a part of it. That's what's fun about an ensemble is when you, you may not know their names and all that, but you spend time enough with those people that you're, you're invested in them. Like we talked about. Sure. Yeah. It was nice that they didn't just focus on Gilbert and Sullivan and Doily cart, that they actually expanded it out to the cast and, and even giving, like we were talking about earlier, the chorus, a, a wonderful part at the end, you know, chorus can so easily be overlooked, but they had such a huge role to play in history and in this movie that I thought that was fantastic. I just loved how they brought everybody together for this. Yeah. And then the fact that the, the rehearsal process that they go through mm-hmm. is just neat to see. And I mean, I've never been on a, a full stage production, so I don't know what all that involves. What's that process like when you're doing rehearsals and get to the full dress? Again, very, uh, it, it brought back memories of my rehearsals, uh, seeing, uh, that scene where Gilbert is working with the three actors, uh, um, the actors playing Coco, um, Puba and Pity Singh. And he's being very particular about a certain way he wants them to do it. No, boom, like do it on the beat, you know, and, and don't say it this way. Don't use a Cockney accent, um, I've worked with all sorts of directors, so it's going to vary wildly, but I thought it was very uh, um, true to the process of, uh, of the rehearsals and, and just the amount of work um, that goes into it and the painstaking hours and the scene towards the end where they're all exhausted after a laborious dress rehearsal and they're just ready to go home and go pass out. They're like, can we just wait till tomorrow for the notes? No, no, everybody has to come out. Yeah, it, it's very reminiscent uh, of uh, of what I've experienced. And my only thinking about that is like, there's no time like the present to get that back in your head, to let you think about it and fix it at the moment. Right. Yeah. Also that. Yeah. Um, both for the uh, production staff and for the actors and actresses um, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it, all the, the effects and things that they have going on, but the, all the moving parts of a Victorian era operetta are mind blowing. You have the full mm-hmm. orchestra, 
all right, that has to be in tune and in time. You have all of the actors, you have the stage managers, you have the stage production people who are behind and they're all, and what's amazing, like you said, you see the chorus backstage when the solo is happening and they're all mouthing it. You all know each other's stuff because you have had to live it for all this time. And none of them are on headphones either. Yes. That's, I mean, <laughs> they're having to do this through looking at each other and having rehearsed what I can imagine is just rehearsed it to death. And Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and it does bring that pivotal scene that we mentioned in our intro there where the chorus uh, decides, no, you cannot cut this song. All right. And, and I, I thought that was neat that Gilbert was just bent on, no, we're, we're pulling this out. It doesn't really work. And the chorus is like, you can't cut that. You have to have it. And the fact that the artists were right. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty historical uh, that he Gilbert was was kind of he couldn't really make up his mind on certain things. He he wasn't sure how things would be received. So sitting there and listening to the song during dress rehearsal, he just like no, I, I I'm not going to gamble with this. Same reason why he didn't stick around to watch the first performance. Like he he left, he went on a walk. You know, he's like I can't, I can't, I I don't I want I don't want to see how this is received. I just want to come back after it's all done and read the paper in the morning. And um, <laughs> I thought that was phenomenal. That is, that is neat. And that's a very modern thing. I know people that have worked in movies and stuff like that, and they will go to opening night and they walk out the door. Like they don't want to see it. Like they, they've usually <laughs> seen it with, you know, the production staff or they've seen it alone. There's some actors like big name actors today still that will not watch their stuff until they can see it by themselves. Yeah. They, yeah. And, and it also ties back to the very first scene in in the whole movie as well where he's sitting backstage not watching the princess ida opener and uh the guy comes in and says uh it's going great it's magnifique or whatever he says in uh in french that uh, unfortunately i didn't have those subtitles on um but uh he says um what do you want me to do kiss the carpenters it's it's just so Gilbert. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah, but again, that, and that's what you love about this guy is that he's always tinkering with his creations. And yeah, I, I can appreciate that in a lot of ways, having been a songwriter for a number of years and played in a lot of bands. There, there are songs that my band finally recorded that we worked on them for 10 years and we mm. were still working on them when it was done, you know? And then having this year reviewed, uh, finished our reviews of the Stanley Kubrick movies that we've been doing for years now, Kurt and I talk about how there's just some things that like he just was constantly messing with his stuff. And there's some people that just, that that's their process is to constantly shave and tinker with it. Whereas Sullivan writes it is good with it and give me a drink. I'm good. Yeah, I mean, sometimes he will change certain things, but for the most part, you're right. And uh, it actually reminds me of the, you know, so that's a great creative process. I think continuing to work on something, not letting it just, you know, be done or whatever. I think that's, it's very important to the creative process. And I, I kind of, I, I go back in my memory to, I think I watched a, uh, an interview with John Cleese, where he was talking about uh, John Cleese of Monty Python. He said, um you know, in in his workshops, what he would do is he would give himself a time limit where he would decide, you know, I'm going to bring this idea, fully fleshed out idea, even if I think it's done, and I'm going to bring it to the table, set a timer and give myself that much extra time to fine tune it. But once that timer's done, I got to stop and move on to the next thing. I just thought that was really fascinating. That is great. I mean, there, there have been several, uh, you know, producers and things through the years that have said, I think Bob Rock is one of the new famous rock producers of all time said great albums are never really finished. They're just eventually abandoned. 
and mm. then the record company puts them out and they hope you buy it. <laughs> and he yeah. said that that's you know, he said a lot of the things my name's on, that's a good way to describe the record, is that eventually we just gave up. <laughs> you know, like yeah. we had enough and that was it. You know, it's but I, I do appreciate that process and that we get to see that. And it is so neat that Gilbert, you know, he's having to dodge the vagrant on the street and he's he's trying to get his <laughs> mind off of it and bless his heart he can't do it. And he finally comes back and he just hears the the uproar of the audience and how much they're into this and then we get that great um uh moment uh, the little title card that says you know it was one of the most famous shows and that last song is one of the reasons why you know just kind of mm. a, a final dig that eh, the course was right that that, that yeah yeah uh absolutely that uh it was uh i i just love the way that uh that they portray him in the film and and i think it's uh you know him, him walking back and having that moment where he comes out and stands out on stage, very like a fish out of water. Like he doesn't even know where he's <laughs> shakes the hand. He's like, okay, can we be done? I don't know. Yeah. It's, um, it's neat to watch that though. Cause you watch this person who's been so involved with every step of this thing. And then he doesn't want to mm-hmm. be out in front of it. And I, I can understand that though. Cause again, I, I work in a little bit of that kind of world. And I, I think I like seeing the final product. I don't need to be out in front of it for it to know that I had a part of it. Well, Bob, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Topsy Turvy? I think there's an important piece that we, we need to touch on before we can kind of close it out. And it's with regards to the cultural appropriation of this piece. Mm-hmm with regards to the fact that it's been put on so many times by Caucasians and, and really it, it can be seen as very um, offensive uh, to, to the Asian American community, to, to the Asian community on the whole. Um, and I think that there's definitely a right way to do it. As far as this movie is concerned, I thought because it was a historical piece, I saw nothing wrong with it. It was, it was a, a pleasure to see. It was, enjoyable but it's important for people to know especially those who want to produce the mikado in the future um definitely get somebody on your staff who can uh walk you through the best way to produce it without offending others um and it's i can't state enough how how you know we have to go with the times here and we have to change with it but that we can still appreciate this movie because it is a step into history to discuss um and to show how how they came about all this um and and that being said you know if you can look past that piece of it and really just enjoy it for what it is is a piece of history is it a piece of an ama- amazing cinema um talking about the the history and trying to get it as as true to um to the real story as possible I would say that for me, it's an extra large. It's it's my favorite movie, and uh, but I would say for those of you who maybe are not so interested in the theater, Gilbert and Sullivan, Operetta, uh, or any of that, I still think you would find it to be a large sized popcorn. I really do, just because uh, because of all the amazing elements that are put into it, and the costuming, and the, the sets, and the makeup. I I mean, I can't say enough about all that and the acting. And the final song, uh, The Sun Whose Rays Are All Ablaze, um, is done so differently than it normally is on stage that it gives it a new twist and is really just a beautiful way to end the whole film. I just thought um, that was amazing. That's great. You know, Bob, I'm glad you said all of that. And the one thing I will take away from this, just in terms of the culture part of it, that I appreciated was for a man of his time, 
Gilbert went out of his way to try to incorporate the realism of that culture as he saw it as part of it. And I will give credit to that because that's somebody who's trying to learn and he's clearly writing a love letter to what he fell in love with at that Japanese exhibition. That's a great scene with he and his wife. We didn't really talk about it in this, but all of that and when the sword falls and just the the spark of genius that that gives him, Mm -hmm. you realize you're watching somebody write about something that they admire deeply. And I can always appreciate that. And in modern cinema and in modern theaters, absolutely, there's a way to do this and it should be done. But for a portrayal of how it was done when it was created, I thought it was very fair, very even. And it gives you a good sense of how people's minds worked and how we've changed through time. Mm-hmm. So I always appreciate this thing. As far as a movie goes, like a movie watching experience, I always grade things on, did it accomplish what it set out to do and how well mm. did it do that? And the thing about this movie that going into it, I said, okay, this is over two and a half hours long. So I know I'm in for a long movie. I started watching this at like 10 o'clock at night and not once did I get tired, did I get bored, did I lose interest in it. Part of it was it's a different world for me. So I'm just soaking it all in, but it was really, really well done. And I put a lot of it on our director, Mike Lee, and the way he got the performances out of the actors that he got and that it spends enough time with our leads, but spends enough time away from them that you can see the number of people it takes to pull one of these things together. That's a hard thing to do in a big period piece with an ensemble cast like this. For sure. The the music in it is amazing. We've talked about how beautiful it looks. It would still look great today. I definitely think it is worth seeing whether you're into theater or not, watch a piece of art and enjoy it. Because that's the other thing about this movie is it's really funny. It's really fun. You won't get all the humor, but you'll appreciate it because of the way these people are playing it so dead straight the whole time. And it's, it's an absolute blast. I give this one a very strong, large popcorn. Definitely one I would recommend people see. And I'm so glad you brought it to me because, again, as I said earlier, it's rare to find something that I haven't had any connection to here on Filmstrip. So it's always fun to get new stuff in the wheelhouse. And, uh, you know, I I put a little saved search for if they ever start selling DVDs of it again, you know, the, then I'll, <laughs> I'll pick up a copy of this one and add it to the collection because it is definitely something worth seeing and but i'll tell you right now if you're a theater lover you obviously probably know gilbert and sullivan or whatever you gotta watch this i mean this is this is their story and it's it's such a great way to tell their story uh on a cinema uh, in a piece of cinema so large popcorn for me and was a lot of fun talking with you about bob thanks again for coming on film strip thank you so much for having me it was a lot of fun i really appreciate it hope you'll have me back someday Absolutely. You name dropped Tombstone in there. We haven't done that one in all the years of this podcast somehow. So that oh, someday well. that'll, that'll have to happen. So, Because <laughs> uh, I definitely have thoughts about that movie for sure. Folks, oh, yeah. you can find our archives uh, in your podcast feed or on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find podcasts, that's where we are. Please leave us a positive review wherever you find the show and share it. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at FilmstripPod or search Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook and connect with us there. We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Bob Godosmas, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.